How often do you think about what it is that you are going to be doing as you walk into a place like this? How often as you are making the walk from the car uh, into the place of worship do you ponder the significance of what you are about to engage in? How often do you think about what worship really is all about? Why actually do we do what we do here? What is it we're seeking to do in this place? And given the amount of time that some of us do spend here in this room or one like it, is there anything that we could alter in any way that might make this time even more meaningful, even more than it uh, is today even closer to what it is meant to be. I want to begin by acknowledging that, that it is easy to slip into thinking of worship as just one of the many items on the menu of our life. It is easy, I think, I confess this for myself, to, to come to worship because we have simply a taste for that sort of thing. Well, others of us are perhaps trying to develop a taste for worship because we've been told something like broccoli, that it is good for us. And other people have no taste for it at all, which is why there is room in this place. We could fill this place with others if they had the taste for this. But what if that frame of taste is the wrong one altogether? What if properly understood, worship is not just one option on the menu of life, but is actually the primary purpose of human existence. Long ago, some of the greatest thinkers of the human race gathered at Westminster in England to uh, reflect together on many, many important things and to develop a creed which would articulate their understanding of the nature of life and faith. And the first question that they posed to themselves was, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose of humanity? And they arrived at an answer to the question that reads as follows, and I put it on the cover of the worship bulletin today. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief purpose of human life is to exalt God and to exult in him and to enjoy him forever. Worship is not one activity of our lives. It is the actual fundamental purpose of our lives. As Rick Warren put it more recently in The Purpose Driven Life, you and I were planned for God's pleasure. We were created to exalt him and exult in him and enjoy him. Properly practiced, worship is actually our way of gathering our small existence up into the glorious, staggering significance of who God is and what God is doing in time and space. Worship is the way that we begin to practice or learn the occupation of angels. It's the way we begin to orient our heart and mind and souls and strength to, to that encounter with the Almighty One that is going to be the, the absolute defining nature of eternity. It, it is a, a getting ready for heaven. It is a beginning of glory. 
And if that is really true, as so many across the Christian tradition have written, then we would probably be a bit crazy not to evaluate from time to time how our worship is actually going. Whether we are actually experiencing and entering into this activity in the way that God has in mind. So the question I want to reflect on in uh, four episodes this month is, what do you bring to worship? What is it that you bring in the way of yourself to worship? When I ask the question, I, I don't mean, do you bring your Bible? Do you bring your offering? Do you bring your neighbors? Do you bring your loved ones? I hope you bring all of those things. But what I'm really trying to get at is, what is the set of expectations or attitudes that you bring in with you when you come to a place like this. I want to suggest just today that many of us, I think, bring to worship one of three typical mindsets or motivations. And simply naming those, I think, will be helpful in allowing us to set those mindsets aside a bit more. They will always play some role in our thinking. We're human beings, but I want to name them so that we might more purposely set them aside in favor of a final mindset I want to recommend to you. I think some of us come with an expectation of experiencing worship as a form of entertainment, a sacred form of entertainment, grant you, but as something that is akin to entertainment. I'm not saying that we come here expecting to hear uh, Taylor Swift uh, singing or Brad Pitt preaching. That's not gonna happen here. At least on the singing side, I think you've got better. I will go on to add. But we have lived for so long in the midst of the most ubiquitous entertainment culture in human history. Do I need to make that point again? There has never been a culture that is more uh, permeated by constant entertainment, by the power of entertainment as the culture in which you and I have grown up. And we have lived so long in this context. Uh, we've watched so many movies and plays and television shows and concerts and acts and athletic contests that, that it is very, very hard to imagine how this has not come to shape our attitudes and expectations at least unconsciously. After a while, your orientation becomes subconsciously conditioned by the very position that you take in this place. You walked in this very morning. You noticed you were surrounded by a whole lot of other people. I've taken my seat down here, you think. Something's going on up there where the lights are brighter. So, entertain me. Probably not at the front of your mind, you're too devoted to Christ for that, but it is hard not to sit in that kind of, of worldview. I notice this myself when I visit other churches. I'll come out of a church service, and my wife and I will get in the car, and Amy will say, so what do you think of the sermon? And I will answer like I'm a judge in one of those entertainment shows we see on TV all the time. I'll say, oh, well, I, I, I give him an eight for the sermon title. I thought that was very original. I would only give him about a six, probably, for the degree of difficulty that he chose with that particular text, and I, frankly, he only gets about a four or five, maybe, for his execution of the delivery. Did you see how bad his posture was? Now, I know you're 
not as crass as I am about these things. You have never had such a conversation in your car going home, or you've never given me more than a three. But you can see, can't you, how conditioned we are to be evaluating the entertainment value, the uh, inspirational value of the experiences we have. Uh, some of you don't bring that mindset as uh, significantly as maybe others do. Maybe you slip into thinking of worship more as an act of enterprise. Uh, of enterprise. What do I mean by worship as enterprise? Well, I mean that a few of us, I'm, I'm going to guess, have an almost economic attitude towards worship. And the internal conversation, again, mostly at the subconscious level, goes something like this. You know, I could be a lot of other places this morning. I got a lot of things on my list. I could have chosen to go anywhere else. I've chosen, however, to come here. I've given up some of my precious time. I've shelled out some hard-earned cash into the offering plate or into that push pay app on my phone. Is it too much for me to ask to get something back for my investment? Is it too much for me to do that? I mean, at least give me the kind of music that I like, the particular seat that I would prefer here in this place, can you please get me out of here on time? That should be the deal. That should be the deal. Worship for us, for some of us, is something of a deal, an arrangement, an enterprise we've entered into that's got a certain contract to it in our minds. Can any of you admit to that sort of sentiment? If I'm still not pegging you, then maybe your mindset is not so much worship as entertainment or worship as enterprise, but rather worship as edification. And I'm gonna guess that for a lot of us, this is the driving perspective. We come to worship expecting to be edified, expecting to be uh, built up. That's what edification means. An edifice is something that has been built up. We come to this place expecting to be inspired and instructed. We think to ourselves, look, my life is hard and it's complicated. The world is crazy out there. I've got pressures on me that you would not believe. I need help. I know the Bible offers that help. And if I cannot find inspiration to lift up my mood or get some practical instructions to handle my life better, then what is the use of coming here? What's the use of worship? And the natural tendency is, as you go out on Sundays, is to be posing the question in your head someplace, did that service meet my needs? Was I edified? I'm not throwing stones here. I know about all three of these attitudes simply by looking into myself. I find these things in myself. I think it's very hard in today's cultural context not to be a consumer Christian of sorts. More and more pastors I talk to these days are developing their vision for worship services by asking, will the people like this? Will the people feel good about what I'm offering or our church's offering? Will they be comfortable with it? More and more attenders uh, judge the value of the experience they have in my worship by asking, what did I get from that? What did I get 
from my time in worship. Be honest with yourself. To what extent is that true for you? I want to be quick to add, I guess, that I think there is something natural and healthy about some of these impulses and feelings. Uh, I think that worship ought to be emotionally vital and practically relevant. It should be. If you're going to encounter the God of all truth, the God of all creation, it ought to be engaging. It ought to bring wisdom and value into your life. There's no virtue in music or liturgy, sermons or prayers that fail to connect with people. I think of the Native American chief who once attended a church service and was asked afterwards, so what did you think of our service? And the church said, or the chief said, big wind, lot of dust, no rain. (laughs) Worship should not be dry. It should not be dry. We who design worship services have a responsibility to pray and to prepare toward the goal of helping people and counter the living water of God's Holy Spirit, that the living water that seeps into our souls and that satisfies our deepest needs. But I think there is a danger to regarding worship in only that way or mainly that way, as primarily this, primarily this human-targeted practice driven by our tastes and our fashions. And I, I think this tendency to look at it this way is, is what the Apostle Paul was aiming at. When after uh, speaking such words of encouragement as we've heard earlier this morning to the church at Corinth, he, he turns and begins to challenge the believers in that city in, in a different kind of way. Later on in his letter, Paul says, now in the following directives, I have no praise for you. I've been giving you a lot of praise. What I'm about to say, take note, isn't going to feel good. I have no praise for you in this, for your meetings do more harm than good. Your worship stinks, is what he's saying. That's a very bad Yelp review. Very few people reading St. Paul saying this are going to think, oh, I think I'll show up up at the church at Corinth this weekend. So what was it? What was going wrong with the worshiping life of the Corinthian Christians? Well, to make sense of this, you have to understand a little bit more about the way worship was done when the church of Jesus first began. Worship in those days, as you may recall, often took place, usually took place in people's homes, as by uh, extension is still the practice in much of the globe today, where the church is growing fastest in the global south. Mainly, people are meeting in homes. And the believers would gather in those homes. They would come together, usually just a a fairly small band of them, to sing or to pray or to, to listen to some teaching and then almost always to share a meal And that meal had an immensely practical and a spiritual significance to them. It was not only a remembrance of Jesus' last meal with his own disciples, which that was in part the function, but it was also a time when each of the believers had this opportunity to transcend themselves and to join into something and someone vastly greater than the self. 
People would bring to that meal whatever they could in order to share it with the others who were there. And, and the poor believers that came, we know this if you read on in the text, you get a sense of it, particularly in chapter 11. The, the poor believers uh, very often would experience that communal meal as like the, the most nutritious meal they would have in the entire week. This potluck supper that got put together would often provide more nutrition and help to those poor believers than they could get anywhere else during the course of the week. And so it, it served a powerful function for them, physically and also spiritually. It was a reminder that God loved them and cared for them and provided for them, even when they didn't know how fully to do that for themselves. For the affluent believers, it served a very important function also because it was a powerful way for those who had been given much to remember that they were also given now an opportunity to be generous, to share from what they had, to imitate the God who had it all and who gave himself away. And so for the affluent believer also, it was a powerful chance to join themselves to something and someone vastly greater. Rich or poor, the meal was a place of communion with God and community with other believers. It was a time when people reconnected themselves to the Lord who had called them to remember him in the breaking of the bread. It was a moment when every participant was, was invited to look beyond their self-interest and remember they are part of a new kind of family. It was a time to focus on and glorify the unseen host who promised that whenever even two or three gathered in his name, he would be there. He would be there in their midst. That's how it all began. That's how worship started in the Christian movement. But now, says Paul, I, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Paul is, is basically challenging individualism. He's challenging the tendency that had developed in the first century already for believers to think about church as a what's in it for me, as a way of meeting my needs. Christian worship, he says, is not some kind of spiritual food fight. It's not a place where we're going to scrap for our taste to be met our liturgically or musically or otherwise. It's about creating together this shared experience in which Christ is exalted as the Lord of the table and mysteriously everyone gets fed. That's what it's about. It's exalting him, exalting in him. Glorifying God, enjoying him forever together. Now, I, I, I'm challenged by this particular passage because it seems to me there's an important lesson in it. Because a congregation whose life is human-centered, as so many, I think, in American churches today uh, slip into being, a congregation whose worship gets is consumer-driven is at great risk of developing a fellowship where some go thirsty and hungry while others' tastes are oversupplied. 
It's happening all over our nation today as churches fragment over the question of how they will worship. People are fighting over whether the music will be played by guitars or organs in classical or contemporary style. They're criticizing each other for the clothes they choose to wear. One generation decries the blindness and shallowness of the other. It's just, it's just a replication of the Church of Corinth. Uh, and as Paul predicted, the eventual result is the destruction of the unity of the body of Christ. It's a destruction of the immense power and synergy of a church who by the witness to its unusual unity across cultural and racial and gender and generational divides presents a witness to the kingdom of God, something above human taste. Um, now, I, I think one of the reasons that I've just been so awestruck by this congregation is by its capacity to move beyond that particular frame. I'm not saying we're done. I, I'm not saying I'm done in this respect. All of us, I think, are to some extent people of taste, and we have our opinions about things. But in, but in so many ways, what I love about this church is that it does seem to retain the proper kind of focus. And the focus, I think, can be well um, illustrated by a story from the musical world. Some years ago, the uh, brilliant uh, conductor Arturo Toscanini was conducting one of the world's great orchestras in the playing of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. How many of you ever heard Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? It is truly one of the masterpieces, right? Okay, so at the conclusion of this magnificent presentation, the audience just explodes to its feet with cheering and applause. There's just wild excitement in the room when suddenly Arturo Toscanini does something unexpected. He turns around and he faces the uh, people in the symphony hall and instead of doing the modest bow, he begins to wave his arms frantically stopping them, stopping them from their applause. And gradually they began to, to quiet down. And Toscanini, very, very worked up, turns around to his orchestra and he says, you are nothing. And then he starts pointing to himself and he says, I am nothing. And then he looks up and points out his hands and says, Beethoven, he is everything, everything, everything. And that, in my mind, helpfully illustrates the core conviction, the fundamental passion, the critical perspective always needed each time we enter this place. Christian worship must always remain focused on remembering and honoring the one who is everything, everything, everything. Worship is not fundamentally about entertainment or enterprise or edification, it is about exaltation. That is its fundamental purpose. It's about exalting and enjoying God. 
And those who I think understand this do not bring a mindset that in any way says, what's in it for me, but rather one that says, what's in it for him? What's in it for him? And strangely, those who come with that mindset often find their needs being met as they glorify him. I love the uh, way that the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard understood this. And Kierkegaard once said that one of the greatest dangers confronting the church in its, in its communal life is our tendency to grow very confused about our different roles in worship. And, and I thought this was immensely timely. Kierkegaard said, we tend naturally to think of people in the seats as an audience, the people up front as the prompters, and, and, or rather, as the performers, rather, and God as the prompter. God prompts us, we perform, the audience enjoys. The truth, however, is that in Christian worship, writes Kierkegaard, those of us up front are actually the prompters, you who are in the seats are the most significant performers, and God is the audience of one. Do we think of it that way? Everything we do when we come together here, our praying, our preaching, our singing, our processing up and down, our giving, our celebration of the sacraments, all of the ways that we play the instrument of our lives in this place and then out there in the world when we go, all of these are fundamentally for a single purpose, for the enjoyment of God, for the glory and pleasure of God, for the delight of God. And at the end of every service, and every preacher tries to remember this when she or he is tempted to water down the gospel or speak to one group's taste over another, at the end of each service, the only ovation that is going to count is the applause of heaven. It's the only thing that matters. And if you have glorified God when you were singing that hymn, or you have glorified God when you were offering that anthem, or if you have truly glorified God in that prayer that you were offering or in the sermon that you were giving, even if everyone around you thought, well, that was just a five, you have fulfilled the great purpose of worship. And he will be pleased. So let's bring to worship a passion to please the one who is listening and watching. When songs are being sung to God, do your best to join in even if your voice is lousy or you don't know all of the words or the, or the music. It's okay. The Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord. It doesn't say make a a beautiful noise, it might as well say, make it croak if you have to, but make it to the Lord joyfully. When some prompter up here prays, let the words that we offer become your offering of yourself to God in prayer. When the offering time comes, 
Exalt God with your gifts. Make the gift something that truly exalts him. When we're finding ourselves just so filled with enjoyment of God's presence in this place that, that we can't sit still and we just have to clap, though let me just say, you don't need to so much. And they would tell you the same. We're just the prompters. But if you are filled with such joy before the presence of God, by all means, clap. Just make it clear. It's going that way. The Bible's full of instructions to clap to the Lord. But never in a performance culture kind of way. When an element in the service is not to your particular taste, just try and take delight that it's feeding that teenager down the pew. Or it's encouraging that older person in the seat behind you. Just rejoice that Jesus is making sure that different people are being fed in different ways at this meal. When you get up to go, greet the people around you as if they were actually your brothers and sisters. They are. You're the forever family. You're going to be worshiping in eternity get together. It's, it's going to be get to know each other now because you've got a long future ahead of you. Enjoy each other. And when you're out there between weekends, live to please him, to bring glory to him in every way that you can. Remember that witness, your daily witness, is simply your worship walking. Witness is worship walking. And if we will do this, if we will lean into this way of being before God and each other, that I believe that somewhere in eternity, those two great hands that formed the cosmos, those two beautiful hands that were pierced upon a cross for the sake of you and me and the forgiveness of our sins, those true, two strong hands that reached out to me when I was just a prodigal and reach out even now to you in love, those two great hands will come together with a clap of approval there will be applause in heaven because we have truly worshipped. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you know each of us. You know how easily we fall into the popular traps of life. You know how quickly we come to think that we are the center of things, how readily we come to judge the worth of people and events by whether or not they please us. But we shudder at the thought of arriving at the end of our lives, standing before you and only then discovering that all along it was actually our behavior, our passions, our performance, whose quality was being assessed. We give you thanks that through the grace you have extended in Jesus Christ, you don't require perfection of us so much as a right orientation and a humble effort. You call for us simply to worship in spirit and in truth. 
We thereby renew this very day our commitment to seek to try to live in such a manner and to worship in such a way that heaven echoes with the sound of your approval. For this we pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.